0: Hello there. Welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from The Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First of all, happy Easter to you. Christ is risen indeed. This podcast is being released on Easter Sunday, and the first guest is Laura Ritchie. She has composed a book of stories that trace different key snapshots in the life of Jesus leading up to and including his death and resurrection. Hear what she says we can learn from the life of Christ ahead. Then Robert Nash of Sawyer Highlands Church in Michigan zeroes in on what are called the seven last words of our Lord. Some of his comments are ahead. Plus, noted researcher George Barna is part of a new initiative at Arizona Christian University called the Cultural Research Center, which has just released the American Worldview Inventory 2020, which illustrates the low percentage of Americans, including Christians, who possess a biblical worldview you'll be hearing from him coming up and on this edition of the intersection physician charles page provides some insight and encouragement regarding the covid 19 situation sharing from his unique perspective as a christian and a doctor then it's back to faith radio meeting house media central at the 2020 national religious broadcasters convention in nashville james Gottrie is with the james dobson family institute and provided some comments relative to the problematic practice of allowing biological males who are transgender or transitioning to identify as female and compete against females in competitive sports. Finally, an inspiring story from the world of sports with legendary Texas high school football coach Ronnie Gage, who also coached in college, where he allowed the oldest man to play and score a point in NCAA football, Tom Thompson, to play on his team. They've written a book together and you'll hear highlights of their NRB visit with me. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Laura Ritchie wrote the Advent Storybook several years ago and has released the Easter Storybook, 40 Bible Stories Showing Who Jesus Is. In it, she relates snapshots from the life of Jesus with the intent of showing children ages four through eight more about Jesus and his identity. Here now is Laura Ritchie.
1: There are obviously a lot of stories um, in the Gospels, and I, I kind of started out with a chart that had all of the stories, and I, I wanted to see which stories were present in all four books, and I included a lot of those. So Um, the, the stories start out with Jesus in the temple as a boy. And then, um, you know, I have, I have Jesus um, being baptized and Jesus being tempted. And so those are kind of chronological. And then the last few stories are chronological as well. Um, you know, the last supper and Jesus dying and coming back to life and appearing to a lot of people, but the ones in the middle were a little bit trickier to decide, um, Mostly because in the West we're really used to things being organized by time. We're we're used to things being chronological, and the the Gospels really don't seem to be written um, chronologically. Um, some some of them are, but a lot of the stories seem to be organized by topic. And I kind of understood that by reading um, Dr. Kenneth Bailey. He has several books. He's a, one of my favorite theologians and New Testament scholars. But Anyway, so I, I actually organized the ones in the middle by topic, and so I picked seven names of Jesus, um, and then I tried to group different stories um, by how they show Jesus as the Good Shepherd or Jesus as the Son of Man. Um, so I have you know, lots of stories about Jesus being the healer. He, he healed so many people um, of diseases and even of death, bringing people back to life, and then I have a lot of his parables as well, um, because the stories that he taught were just amazing, and um, Dr. Bailey, the same, the same author that I mentioned earlier, he has written a lot of books that really explain those stories from a Middle Eastern context and perspective, and so um, I wanted to include those and kind of give people some of the insights that I had gained from reading Dr. Bailey's work.
0: You actually took incidences, different events from the life of Jesus. How is it that you really decided to go in that direction?
1: I really wanted to show who Jesus is and why his whole life and his death and resurrection still matter today. Um, the, the title really comes from, I was hoping uh, to have a time of year that families could pick up this book um, every year and read it together as a family. So, you know, the Advent storybook you read during Advent to prepare for Christmas, and then the Easter storybook um, can be read during Lent. That's why there are 40 stories. To prepare for Easter, to kind of just help your family focus um, and, and really understand who Jesus is and, and why, like why he still matters today.
0: Share with us from your personal standpoint why you see that an understanding of the identity of Christ, of who he is, really informs us to appreciate what he did with respect to dying for us and, of course, raising from the dead.
1: Sure. Yeah, so this kind of ties into the Advent book as well, because we kind of have to understand how things were at the very beginning to understand who Jesus is. Um, so, you know, in the beginning, God made everything good, and there was no evil, um, there was no death, and everything was, was perfect. But when when people believed Satan's lies— and acted on, you know, acted on those lies, everything shattered, and um, the world was broken, and we, we no longer lived in perfect friendships with God, and with each other, and with creation. And, you know, everything seemed like it was just lost and gone, but God spoke a promise that He would send a rescuer to come and crush evil, and Jesus is that rescuer. He's the Messiah, that the Jewish people had waited for for centuries, and so that is that's who he was, and that's kind of what the Advent storybook travels <clears throat> travels through history to explain. And then, if we have that background, we can understand what Jesus was doing when he was healing people, when he was teaching, when he was loving people that everyone else ignored or despised, and Throughout all of that, he, he, he really was the rescuer who was showing us what his good kingdom is like, how he's going to make all things new, and he was inviting us to realize our need for him and to be a part of that, that new kingdom that he's bringing. So you kind of have to have the background before you can really understand um, just the beauty of his life. and and how how he was making everything
0: good in you again. Laura Ritchie here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website adventstorybook.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Robert Nash, a pastor at Sawyer Highlands Church in southwest Michigan. In a recent conversation with me, he discussed material relative to his book, Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross, from that conversation here now is Robert Nash.
2: The key word of the first thing is "Father, forgive." Forgive, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. Um, the second thing he says is, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." I focus on the word "today," the, the immediacy um, of uh, that word uh, of that saying. Um, behold, you know, your mother. Behold, um, your son. Uh, Jesus says, "Behold," he he called attention to, to two people who were watching him who love him and who uh, are, are seeing him and agonizing over his death. Um, he gives a word of comfort. Um, the fourth saying is, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the, the key word I, I, I picked there was why. Uh, the, the fifth saying is, I thirst. And so I focused on the thirsting. And I think we see a, a humanity there. And uh, the sixth saying, it is finished? What is finished? That, that's, so I, I focus on the word finished. And the seventh saying is Father, of the saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit.
0: So let's talk about how Jesus actually said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What do you, what do you take away from that statement that he made?
2: When I look at that saying, I look at my own self and I say, what would I do under pressure? What do I do under trial? I, I tend to run away or try to fight back. What does he do? He offers forgiveness. He extends forgiveness. He asks for forgiveness to the Father, to those who are actually hurting him, killing him, persecuting him. You know, he, he expresses this heart of compassion. And, and so the first thing we have is a heart of compassion, um, which is something for us to consider where we might be struggling with bitterness unforgiveness, we've hurts and, and pain in our past, and, and we can't do this. But through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have the power to do what we cannot do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can forgive, and he gives us that power as we look at his His forgiveness to us and our sins. And the, the other thing is, some of us carry these this sin, and this guilt and shame, and so uh, we can see his, his compassionate heart there, where we, we need compassion. We need someone to to forgive us, and so uh, that that first word is a word of uh, compassion in a of a savior, where it is it is just incredibly remarkable, um, something that is otherworldly how he responds that way.
0: And then as you look at the next word, as Jesus spoke to one of the thieves on the cross, and after his response to the other thief, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, the significance of that word, how do you see that?
2: Well, Bob, this is this is my favorite, I think. Uh, I, I, re- I was looking over another one, and I, I really like that one too, but this one, what I like about it is because I know my sin. Here's a man, he's got two thieves next to him being crucified for, for the wrong they've done. And he, he, they're railing on Jesus. The guy next to him, this other uh, robber, this other criminal, is saying, Hey, get us down from here. And he says, you know, they're mocking him. And he says, and he, and he, and he says this man has done nothing wrong. He, he defends Jesus. He speaks up for Jesus. And every time when, when you're dying on a cross... If, you, if, if we suffer this kind of hor- horrendous death, you don't die by bleeding to death. You die through asphyxiation. So they're pushing down on the nails on their feet, pulling down on their hands so they can get enough air so they can say something. One guy's doing it so he can attack Jesus. The other one's doing it to defend him. And then he turns to Jesus Will you remember me in Paris? I mean, this guy doesn't have a, a Bible degree. This does, the guy doesn't have a, a, a moral track record of a superstar or some, you know you know education you know this ivory tower education this guy he's got a criminal record that's what he's got we remember me it's an expression of faith i love that and i and i see my heart in that i need i need someone to save me from my own sin he he, he says this man's done nothing wrong he recognizes christ and his nature to some extent uh to to this the and then then he also recognizes something else the story is not over at the cross paradise exists yeah. And he's going there, hmm. and so er, Jesus is going there. And, and what does Jesus say? Today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no religious hoop, no alms he has to give, no, no, um, no special right he has to practice. He is, he has through this faith, he has opportunity to be with him immediately um, upon death. There is this uh, faith alone and Christ alone uh, uh, reality there that we see there, and so that's. I just love
0: that. Excerpts from a recent conversation with Robert Nash here on The Intersection. You can find him online at robertjnash.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's George Barna, who now serves as Director of Research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. In our recent conversation, he discussed some of the findings in the American Worldview Inventory 2020, which illustrates the extent to which Americans possess a biblical worldview or lack thereof. Here now is George Barna. We're
3: trying to get a fix on what is the worldview that people embrace, and we're particularly interested in whether or not people have a biblical worldview And if not, what can be done to move them toward embracing one? And so we had 51 different worldview-oriented questions that we asked all 2,000 people in the survey. Those were broken into eight different categories. I worked with the faculty at Arizona Christian for about four, maybe five months, working through what are the key elements, how do we categorize them, how do we address those. And so we've got the eight different categories, 51 questions that are broken into both beliefs and behavior based on my contention from all the research I've been doing for the last few decades, that you do what you believe. And so if, if you say you believe something, I should be able to see that in your behavior. So we wanted to make sure that we were tracking both of those areas. And, uh, you know, this is uh, another installment in a long series of research studies I've been doing since the early 90s, tracking worldview in America. And back in uh, the early to mid-90s, we found that about 12% of the adults in America had a biblical worldview. And sadly, now we've got a more sophisticated test, more extensive measurement process, but what we discovered is that that number has dropped in half to just Mm. 6% of adults in America now possessing a biblical worldview, and that describes a lot of the issues that we're facing in America and the difficulties that we're having trying to address those.
0: Well, let's talk about this this number. As you mentioned earlier, that would have been, what, about uh, the the early 90s, mid-90s? You're talking about 25, 30 years ago, 12% of Americans saying they possess right. a biblical worldview. Now it's down to 6 even though you have, as I understand it based on this survey, seven out of ten of those who were surveyed consider them themselves to be Christian. So you've got an enormous disconnect here. What do you attribute that to?
3: Well, I, I think there are a couple of things that we can point to immediately, probably three things. One is that, of course, biblically, it's the family's job to shape the worldview of their children. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy, particularly in Deuteronomy 6, and it talks about the importance of being very intentional in shaping the minds and hearts of our children. And so clearly families are not doing that job. We know, for instance, that right now only 5% of the parents of children 5 to 13 years old have a biblical worldview, and since you can't get what you don't have, That's challenge number one, is getting families to have the goods to give to their kids and then to be intentionally and strategically doing that. Secondly, we know that churches are not doing a very effective job at helping to shape the worldview. They're supposed to support families in the process, but it's not happening in our churches either. We could talk more about that. And then uh, thirdly, we can talk about those shapers of our culture. I was identifying the seven dominant dimensions of our culture that include not only family and church, but government, arts and entertainment, information and news media, education and schools, and business and commerce. All of those have been shown to have a dramatic impact on what we believe to be true and how we could be living, who we want to be, how we want to be known in the world, and so forth. And so when you look at what those dimensions of cultural influence pushing us to believe and and how they're pushing us to live. It's farther and farther from core biblical principles. And so we've got to get our priorities straight again. We're really missing the mark here. We're not paying attention to worldview development. It's almost been worldview by default in America, and that's not working to our advantage.
0: George Barna here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to culturalresearchcenter.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. That's the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You can find the podcast in the Media Center. You can also subscribe via iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and Access The Meeting House Facebook page and there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Content from the Meetinghouse program can also be found through the Faith Radio app, as well as a variety of podcast platforms continuing now with this edition of the intersection podcast it's physician charles page he's the author of the book a spoonful of courage for the sick and suffering transforming your greatest challenges into your biggest blessings he shared from a doctor's perspective about the coronavirus its effect on smaller cities and rural areas and how people can trust god in the midst of the crisis here now from that conversation is charles page
4: you know, I drove into work today, and uh, there was a refrigerator truck in front of a hospital. You know, we were hearing in New York about the, the, you know the refrigerator trucks that they're putting bodies in. And so we're beginning to see the ripples. I mean, you know, what you hear in New York is real, and it's just beginning to kind of diffuse and disseminate out here into rural hospitals. And so I think in our town of about 30,000, we've had two deaths this week, we have five people in one hospital in the ICU. We have three in the other hospital. You know, one of those patients has been extubated, so people are getting better. And but it's real, and we need to take this uh, take this seriously. You know, once again, God's in control, and He's you know He. This is no accident, and so we got to take advantage of the opportunities. But it's funny, Bob. You know. Rural hospitals, small-town hospitals, have really been struggling for the past, oh, probably 10 years or so. They've been operating in the red. And, you know, it's it's really a challenge in regards to resources here in smaller hospitals. Uh, you know, I serve in an underserved community that doesn't have has sicker people with poor access to health care. You know, it's, it's, it's it, they have to drive for hours to get to a hospital. And so it's going to be a different, it's a different beast
0: in, you know, small rural America. What are some principles that you elaborate on in this book that perhaps can be useful for us today, as well as for those who either have contracted the virus or have friends or loved ones that may be suffering with COVID-19?
4: Well, so these are short stories that people who are sick can read. It's 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 very uh, it's very devotional type stories with uh, with a story about someone who's going through a health crisis, and then it kind of gives a kind of a teaching moment, you know, and and scriptures there to encourage people. You know, here's what I think. I think when we go through a health crisis, whatever it is, whether it's coronavirus or cancer or whatever. You know, we begin to look inward. We begin to ask those existential questions, you know, why me, why now, why God? And we, you know, we feel alone, we feel afraid, we feel out of control, we feel inadequate to face what's coming. You know, I mean, we those just normal emotions that we feel. And, and I think that's so much of kind of what's happening now in our country. You, you know, but so often we need to get past our feelings and go back to the facts. You know, you know, facts. Then our faith, and then our feelings. Our feelings follow. And the facts are, we've we've never been in control, Bob.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very you know? good point. We're, good point. We're not
4: in control, but God is. We don't know the future, but God, but we know who holds the future. And so we're not in control. So we can, you know, as it says in James four eight, you know, draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. You know, and and then, you know, we feel alone, especially in this social distancing right now, that we're all kind of having to change our lifestyle, but realize that a lot of times in the Bible there are people that were, you know, they were, they were isolated, but they weren't alone. And so we know as Christians we're never alone, right? We have the Holy Spirit. We have God himself living within us. And so we we, we got to keep that in mind that, you know, Joseph was isolated, you know, in the pit and the prison and all that. He was isolated, but he was never alone. The Bible says God was always with him. And just keep you know David was in the caves of Engedi and all those places, but he was never alone. God was always with him. And you know, think about what how Paul responded in those times of isolation in prison. You know, I mean, he wrote mm. the prison epistles. He prayed for other people. He made the best out of his circumstances. And so, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us to kind of, even though you know, as we're as we're drawing away from other people to draw close to God and really begin to listen to what God's saying to us and begin to pray for other people and realize we're going to have some great opportunities to share our faith coming out of this. But yeah, just, you know, facts, faith, feelings, you know, and as we begin to, as we begin to look outward, you know, we, you know, stop looking inward, looking upward, and then looking outward and thinking about how can we influence people and how can we, we, we share our faith and encourage people in this time of crisis. I think it'll, I think it'll really help us, and I think it'll help us get get over kind of what's going on in our brain as we begin to look mm.
0: towards the interest of other people. Charles Page here on The Intersection. You can learn more by visiting the website charleswpage.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's James Gottry. He is vice president of public policy for the James Dobson Family Institute. He visited Faith Radio Meeting House Media Central at the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Christian Media Convention in Nashville and discussed a variety of topics, including biological males who identify as women participating in women's sports. Here now from that NRB conversation is James Gottrie I know something that has has become, as we might say, a, a top-level issue in our culture today. And just to mention, you worked with the Alliance Defending Freedom before you came on board with the James Dobson Family Institute. ADF has been really on the front lines of this issue as well. And that has to do with gender and sports, where you have biological males who are going through some sort of gender quote unquote by air quotes are going here gender (laughs) transition and because they now identify with and perhaps have had some sort of treatment therapy or or even surgery to transition or they think that they are transitioning to another gender now they begin to compete in the sports of that new gender with which they identify. Right. it is it has been singled out rightly so as being something that's terribly unfair when you have biological males that are competing with biological females and and because of the di- of the biology here you're seeing young ladies that have perhaps and I know in the track and field area, it's been something that has uh, has been brought out. But they've been training, and they've been trying to be the best at their sport. And now these biological males are coming in, and they're sweeping the awards. It, it certainly is,
5: is unfair. You said it. Women are losing opportunities. Women are being kicked off the field or off the track. They're being kicked off the medal stand. And because of that, they're losing opportunities for college scholarships. They're losing opportunities to fully participate in the sport that they love. And you're right, it's, it's not fair. Uh, athletes want strong competition. Athletes also want fair competition. And that's not what's happening when you allow biological males to compete in women's sports. So how is it that, that
0: you foresee the, the James Dobson Family Institute can really be involved as far as speaking out on this, and if I may use the word inequality in that arena?
5: Well, that's what, that's what needs to happen. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we need Americans, conservatives, Christians, everyone all around the country to speak out on this because sometimes what happens is the truth becomes too controversial. And we went recently to a local college and we asked college students who are being impacted by this. We asked them, what do you think about men competing in women's sports? And it was fascinating because one of those students told me off camera, and said men should not be competing in women's sports. He also told me he did not want to say that on camera. And so, really? Right. And oh so my that's goodness. that's what we want to that's do. What we're dealing with. At the Dobson Institute is we want to communicate it's okay to speak out on this issue. This is about women's equality and, and when you allow men to compete in women's sports, you're rolling back decades of progress for women, and that's wrong, and we need to not be afraid to say it.
0: All right, so The thought occurs to me as we're having this discussion. So you have this so-called transgender rights debate. It's part of the overall LGBT rights debate. Okay, so you've got, on one hand, you've got the so-called LGBT rights. On the other hand, you've got what you might call women's rights. Right. So it seems like to me, and I guess this has to, there probably is an intersectionality element in it as well, but it seems like to me right now when you have a conflict between gay rights and women's rights, LGBT rights win the day.
5: Well, what's happening is the LGBT movement is not asking for equal rights, they're asking for special rights. Sure. Every individual has the opportunity to participate in sports that correspond with their biological gender, with their gender. We do that all the time. There's a reason that in wrestling you have weight classes. Okay? That's not unfair to ask people to participate in a class based on that biological factor. And that's all that we're doing when we insist that women should compete in women's sports and men should compete in men's sports. And there are biological scientific reasons for that, and we need to not deny it. From the 2020
0: National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville, that was James Gottry of the James Dobson Family Institute. You can access the institute at dobsonfamilyinstitute.com. Finally, in another NRB Conversation highlight, it's former high school and college football coach Ronnie Gage, as well as Tom Thompson, who became the oldest NCAA football player and oldest player to score a point while at Austin College in Texas while Coach Gage was there. They discuss their joint story in the book they've co-authored called The Life Coach, Small Town Lessons on Faith, Family and Football. Here now are Ronnie Gage and Tom Thompson.
6: The only goal I ever really set for myself is to get in and get my foot in the door and let's see how far this thing can take us and try to be the best you can be and and, uh, uh, I've been blessed a hundred times over. but it's been a journey it's it's been a, a, a you know coaching is a is a difficult journey because there's so many ups and downs and obstacles and things you have to work through but that's what makes it so so beautiful and uh you know I carry the title of coach my grandkids call me coach uh, I'll, my gravestone will say coach it's I'm very proud to carry that title because I think it, it's it's a profession that's needed I think these kids need us uh and, uh, you know, kids get too much credit for being bad, if if, if that makes sense at all. I, people tell me all the time how tough it must have been to, be, you know, coach this day and time, and I, I, I'm quick to correct them because uh, uh, kids are still kids, and they'll still do what you expect of them. And I, the gauge formula is set your expectations, be demanding of those expectations, and be consistent with those demands, and then love them. And it's a simple – and they'll do it. And uh, – uh, so I love what I'm doing. I, I love the you know the pretense of, of what all this is all about and and hopefully, you know, when it's all over, the legacy will be I made a you know a difference in a positive way.
0: Coach Ronnie Gage and Tom Thompson joining us today here on the Meeting House on Faith Radio. It is NRB 2020, the Christian Media Convention in Nashville. Well, Tom, let's talk about your coming to the team. Love what you said, Coach. That when Tom Thompson came to you, there was a bit of skepticism. It's kind of like what happens when a fifty-two, a fifty-nine-year-old man comes and wants to play football. And of course, then you discover he does have the eligibility left. So obviously, I would say there's a healthy skepticism going in, Tom. Do you, you know? I'm sure that that coach was kind of looking at you saying well this is a guy you know does this guy really really mean it what how's this all going to work out there's a lot of uncertainty here so how do you believe and I think this can be instructive for all of us how do you believe that you were able to win coaches confidence
7: well um, the first thing I was aware of was who coach Gage was in Texas high school football he's he's a legend he doesn't like being referred to as that, but it's true. So I obviously went into the meeting, you know, just with uh, healthy respect for who he was. I listened to him. I shared with him what, what my goals were. uh, And he, he let it settle and he thought about it. And uh, he wasn't real quick to jump on board, but he said, well, we'll just see how it goes. And I was showing up not trying to be young again, I was showing up just trying to be the best old guy I could be. And he, I think he saw over time that I worked as hard as everybody else. I wasn't. He, he made me very aware that he was not going to cut me any slack. I had to do everything that was required. And, uh, and I appreciated that because I think that helped me get the respect that one would need to fit into a, a culture of young college football players. And I wasn't there very long before they accepted me and saw that I was trying to do the best I could do. And I was also trying to do something, Bob, that uh, has been very helpful to me on being what I would uh, consider successful, and that was being teachable. I didn't go there thinking I knew anything. I went there wanting to learn. And uh, so the other kickers that were on the team, uh, they were excited to help me. And uh, so, again, as Coach said, it was a process. It took time. And um, it, and then after a while, neither one of us really thought of it much. I think it was just, you know, we were just trying to go out and win games. And, uh, and he, he was a silent mentor to me in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, and and we got to have some fun along the way. He'd come along during practice when I'd get to have some kicks, and he'd start betting me whether or not I'd make it. And uh, we were we were betting uh, Diet Coke, and I was in, I ended up so far behind of him doubling up on me that I I dumped a couple of cases of Diet Coke on his desk in his office, and uh, and we still kind of play with that uh, to this day, but. You know, it's like any relationship; it takes time, and it takes uh, you know commitment that you want the the relationship to be a blessing, and it's and it certainly turned out to be that.
0: Tom Thompson and Ronnie Gage here on the intersection. You can learn more at Tom's website, which is ninety one kick. That's nine one dot com. Well, we are coming up on the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of the Meeting House. Learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. When you visit that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection. Plus, you can get connected to The Intersection through the Media Center and through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House, and the other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page, and there's a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from The Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app as well as a variety of podcast platforms, iTunes or Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Learn more when you visit the Meeting House homepage. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.